Thank you, Brandon and music team. That was quite a selection today. That was, man, that was really good and very appropriate. And Doug, that, that passage uh, in Psalms 2 has been on my mind this week as well. And so very appropriate. So we are back in 2 Corinthians. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We will be looking at verses 12 through 17 this morning. As Doug mentioned, and as you all are very aware, I'm sure, if you take a quick look at the news, or maybe even your Facebook feed, or your Twitter feed, uh, it would be really easy to conclude that the enemy rages. Satan and his enemy or his team is on the prowl. That nations rage, kings rage. And I'm sure many of you would agree with me when I say that I am deeply affected, I'm deeply saddened by what is going on and what has happened in Israel. What is happening there currently? There are certain times in history, pivotal points in history, when evil stops hiding its face and looks you straight in the eyes. When evil says, I'm going to look you in the face, I'm not going to hide. And this is absolutely one of those times. Hundreds of men, not military. This is not a a military operation. Just men with hearts filled with hate, hearts filled with murder, breaking into a country with one agenda, and that is just to kill Jews, friends of Jews. We are witnessing evil at its height. And it's good to be aware of these things. I've seen some footage. I don't know if everyone has seen a lot of the footage that's taken place, but the atrocities, the atrocities that took place in Israel just last weekend are inappropriate to even mention from here. Things that were happening to children to babies, utter, absolute and utter disregard for human life at all. Wouldn't even be appropriate to speak of from here, but we need to know that it is absolutely demonic. And I don't know how you feel about everything that's happened, about the war and the events that have taken place and how it makes you feel. Maybe you feel worried that we could be next. I don't know. Maybe you feel or you're, you're worried that just the world is just growing increasingly out of control. Maybe that's where fear sets in for you. I mean, we don't have to go to the Middle East to see evil at work, do we? We don't have to go all the way over there. We see children in our own country today being mutilated in the womb by their own parents. By their own, by the ones who are supposed to protect them the most. Mutilated in the womb. We see children who 
at the first signs of puberty are being surgically transformed into whatever they say they are gender-wise. Again, by the ones who are designed to protect them the most, their own parents. We see our nation bent on worshiping sex and celebrating wrong and growing at an exponential rate and celebrating what is wrong and loving what is good. Hating what is good, rather. We see in our own country people celebrating what's happening in Israel, in our country. Look at the college campuses. Look at what they're celebrating. They are celebrating what is happening in Israel all over our country. It is insane. We see even in our own evangelical, quote, end quote, evangelical church moving further and further away from sound doctrine. We see the church moving away from refuting false teaching, but rather embracing it. Mega churches in our own city embracing false teaching and promoting it, going well off the tracks of sound doctrine. Embracing the homosexual agenda, removing scripture from the pulpit, and inputting man's ideas rather than God's into the evangelical church. We see people in the body not forgiving one another, walking in unrepentant sin. We see a whole slew of American Christianity focusing on building your own kingdom instead of Christ's kingdom all throughout our country. We don't have to go far to see people rebelling against God. And this is exactly what we are seeing. It is rebellion. It is nation upon nation rebelling against God. Rebelling against his ways, rebelling against him because they hate him. They do. They hate God. And they don't want to be under his authority. And it might look like, from our perspective, that the enemy is winning. Ever felt that way? Just feels like the enemy is gaining ground, even in the church. It would be very easy, therefore, as Christians to get discouraged. I want to encourage you this morning. Don't get discouraged because I understand how you feel. It's easy to feel like the hill of evil is just too insurmountable. Like, like how can we possibly overcome the culture in our nation? How can we possibly be an effective change? It's very easy to feel discouraged and to feel like the easy thing to do would be to just blend in. Just blend in. Just stay under the radar. You know, don't rock the boat. That would be the easy thing to do. And that would be the response of a church that is hopeless. That would be the response of a hopeless church. But we are not ones without hope. Are we? We are not ones without hope. We must remember, do not forget this ever. When you see evil in the world, do not forget ever that we were once evil. We were once depraved in heart. We were once haters of God, and yet God moved in you, didn't he? He moved in me. The Spirit of God moved, and he worked life in us. He worked life even in us. 
God is always working and he's always moving to redeem his people. As few as they may be. So while we see a world that looks like the enemy is gaining ground, we must remember that we serve the one true and living God. And as we sung today, he's already won the war. He's already won the war. He has set his king in Zion and he laughs at the world's efforts to remove Christ from the throne. He laughs at them. They may look mighty and powerful to us, but as Paul Walsher is famously quoted, he said, if you took every king that has ever existed, from Genghis Khan to Alexander the Great, you took all of their armies, including our great army here in the United States of America, you took them all and they came up against Jesus Christ, they would be nothing more than an annoying gnat batting its head against a rock of granite. They're nothing compared to the king of kings. So we know the end of the story. Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns. He reigns now, and he's coming again. He will reign forever and ever and ever. And this is where Paul finds encouragement. Not hopelessness. Not fear. But motivation. This is where Paul finds encouragement and motivation. Because he doesn't say that because God reigns, that he has no part in the work that God is doing. Rather, it's quite the opposite. Rather, we, see, we get to see from today's text just how Paul views his ministry. The ministry that the triumphant king has called, or better yet, assigned him to. It's the same ministry he's assigned you to. It's the same ministry he has assigned me to. Namely, it's a ministry that points continuously to our weakness and faithfully points to the glory of our triumphant and reigning Savior. Our main point this morning, if you have your handout, our main point, you can follow along in the handout with the points, is we are an inadequate people. We are an inadequate people called to sacrificially point others to our triumphant Savior. We are an inadequate people called to sacrificially point others to our triumphant Savior. So let's pray as we go to God's word this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Jesus, you said that this is eternal life, that we know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. You also prayed, Lord, that we would be sanctified and that we'd be sanctified in truth. You said, your word is truth. So, Lord, create in us greater knowledge of you through your word today and sanctify your people. Implant the truth of your word into our heart and change us. We know you are not done with us. We know 
Even though like we sang today, what we see in the world is one thing, but we know what you've done at the cross. And we know what you're going to do when you return. We thank you for that rock-solid truth. We thank you, Lord, for it is ground, solid ground for our feet to stand on and run on. To give us hearts to run, not grow weary. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you're not there already, should be maybe by this time at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Starting in verse 12, we'll read through just through 17. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. Who is adequate for these things? We are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. This is God's word to you this morning. May he plant it firmly in your heart. So we find ourselves here in verse 12, kind of back in the timeline that Paul was giving us of his travel plans, right? He's talking about his travel plans in chapter 1, take a little bit of a break to explain why he's not going to make it to Corinth, and then we pick up here again his travel plans. And so if you remember, his, his plans were to go, from, go to Corinth on his way to Macedonia, and then hit Corinth again on his way back, on his way to Judea. He's planning to hit them twice. He doesn't. They start to accuse him, and so he starts to explain why he didn't, right? And what happened is that they had begun to embrace the teaching of false teachers. And so in kind of a sense of an urgency, he goes to them in an urgent matter. We call this a sorrowful visit because he went to rebuke them in person, but instead they did not hear him, but outright rejected him. So then he writes a sorrowful letter. He continues to pursue them because he loves them. And in this sorrowful letter, he's calling them to repent. And so now in verse 12, we find ourselves back in the timeline again of where Paul is at mentally before he understands how they've received the letter. He's in Troas. He's in Troas and he's doing what he does. He's sharing the gospel. He's, he's preaching the word and he's by God's grace, establishing a church. And it seems to be going well. It seems to be like, the, he says, the door is open for him in verse 12 for the gospel. A church is about to be planted, but he can't get this church off his mind. This church in Corinth, he can't get them off his mind. He can't get them off his heart. He's written them in this letter. He's like, I, just, I get it. This is awesome here in Troas, but what is happening in Corinth? How are they going to receive this letter and one of the reasons he's anxious is because, well, Titus 
who he sent the letter with, with the letter, was supposed to meet him in Troas, and he's not there. And so he finds himself utterly distracted, utterly distracted by what is going on in the church in Corinth. It says he had no rest in his spirit, which we can kind of understand to mean that he's, he was like anxious. And I think what Paul is just starting off with here is he's just wanting the Corinthian church to know again just how loved they are. He wants to demonstrate his passion for the local church even in the face of gospel opportunity. Even in the face of being of a church being planted and the gospel being received, he has no rest in his spirit. He just can't get the bride already established, sick and hurting off of his And so ultimately, he decides to leave this open door for the gospel to go and find out what is going on with this church in Corinth. He wants them to know that he loves them even more than this opportunity that he had. But he also wants them to know that he's trusting the Lord with it. He's trusting God with it. And the reason why we say this is because we don't get to see what happens. We don't get to see what happens in Macedonia until we get all the way to chapter 7. We have to wait till chapter 7 to find out what actually happens in Macedonia. It just says here that he, he left for Macedonia. Anxious, depressed, sad, discouraged, but thankful. But also thankful. See, he leaves us out, he leaves the repentance that we know about in chapter 7 out of here, chapter 2. He's not celebrating the repentance yet, but rather he wants to begin to contrast himself from the false teachers that were infiltrating the church. Starting in verse 14, he's going to be all the way through chapter 7, he's going to begin defending his ministry and his hope and contrasting his ministry and his hope from that of the false teachers. You see, Paul may be in distress. He may be dealing with a church who, from his perspective in this moment, their sin and their rebellion, that may seem insurmountable to him. His efforts with this church up to this point look like utter failure. Can we resonate with that? Just effort after effort after effort, and just it's not clicking with somebody. It's not clicking. It's not working, and it just feels insurmountable. So he, gets, he feels discouraged in one sense, but yet, in verse 14, he says he's still thankful. And the big difference between him and the false teachers is his gratitude is, and his hope is rooted not in him, but in Christ. Not in his excellent work, but in Christ. The false teachers of the day were saying that we are good, we are excellent, We speak well. We dress well. We have money. We're thriving. Paul, he's suffering. Paul distinguished himself from them by saying, yes, yes, it's not I, but Christ. It's not I, but Christ. And so because of that, because of that, I am thankful. So no rest in verse 12, but yet thankful in verse 14. So look at verse 14 with me. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. 
and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Our first sub-point today is this. We are captured in Christ. We are captured in Christ. So in the midst of spiritual turmoil, anxiety, Paul, it'd be easy to think that Paul even might be tempted to think like, man, this door is open right here in Troas and Satan's doing work over here in Corinth and it's pulling me away from this open door. Why, Why is God allowing this to happen? If Corinth was just smooth, then Troas would be smooth. Why is God allowing this to happen? Why is he allowing me to be pulled away from Troas right now? Paul doesn't go there. Instead, Paul says, thanks be to God who always leads me, or us, in triumph in Christ. In other words, I'm not the triumphant one. I'm not the hope of the people. I'm I'm not the victory in Troas or in Corinth. I am triumphed one. That's who I am. I am the triumphed one. I'm the one being led by the one who triumphs over his enemies, and he is always victorious. You might be hearing that and saying, Matt, what do you mean by he's the triumphed one? Paul here is using the word triumphed in a way at first look kind of looks like something very different to us than what it would have looked like to the church in Corinth. Okay, the word, the word triumph doesn't really mean to them what it would have meant to us and vice versa. But the word that Paul uses is thriambuo. It's a Greek word which means to triumph over. To triumph over. The Roman idea of the word that they would have heard when they heard thriambuo was this Roman idea of a general who had defeated his armies and defeated his enemies. And Paul actually used the same word in Colossians 2 to describe Jesus as triumphing over sin, Satan, and death. And so in the, in the context of this Roman culture, when a Roman general conquered a city that was considered large enough for him to be proud of it, they would give him a ceremony. And this ceremony was called a thriambuo triumph. He was given a triumph. And in the ceremony, when you're given a triumph, what you do as a general is you proudly and confidently drag your captives through the city, chained to you, parading them to their death. And you would burn as homage to your gods, incense to the gods. And it would be a sign of victory for those who were parading them and a sign of death and loss to the city who had to watch this parade. So this is the picture Paul gives of his ministry. A triumph. He is not the conquering one, he's the conquered one. He's not the triumphant one, he's the triumphed one. He's saying, thanks be to God who always leads me as his triumphed one. 
as, as one who is a rebel enemy of God. That's who Paul was. That's who we all were fighting against God. And yet God in his infinite mercy and grace, in his infinite mercy and grace, he pursued you, he captured you, and he triumphed over you. Amen? Paul wants to paint a picture. He wants to paint a picture for the church in Corinth. He wants to paint a picture through the Holy Spirit for Community Bible Church that he is being led by God as a servant. He's been chained to Christ the victor. He's being led and paraded from city to city as Christ captive. But there is a paradox at play here. You see, the captives were the enemy being led to death, and Paul is no longer Christ's enemy. He's not being led to death. Because when Jesus conquers, Jesus conquers and he triumphs with his own death. When Jesus triumphs, he triumphs with his own blood. It was in his death. It was in the death of Christ on our behalf that he nailed our sin to the cross and he canceled the record of debt against us. It was his death that made you clean. It was his blood that justified. It was his crucifixion that redeemed. And so it was because of his love. It was because of the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God that we, along with Paul, can say we are but willing servants of Jesus Christ. That's it. It is the gospel that triumphs. You want to know what the effective change is? It's the same effective change in your life that will affect the change in the world. It is the gospel. It is the proclamation of the love of God through Jesus Christ because it is the gospel that triumphed over you. It is the gospel that captured you. It is the one that captured us and took people who shook their fist at God and changed us to people who would lay their life down for the king. Man, if we only understood the depths riches and the weight and the magnitude of our salvation, what we've been redeemed from, who we've been redeemed to. Do you know who you've been redeemed to? If we did, if we understood the weight of it, we would never say no to our conquering Savior. Paul would say later in chapter 5 that it was the love of Christ that compels me. I think this is what he has in mind here as well. It is the love of Christ that compels me or controls me or restrains me from doing my own thing, from following the flesh. It is the love of Christ that controls him from being independent of Christ. It is the love of Christ that compels me, he says, to be willingly chained to him, to serve him. This is what it means to know Christ. And this is the picture that Paul wants to give us. That to know Christ, that the more you know him, the more you love him, and the more you love him, the more of a slave you become to him and his will in your life. He's a good master, isn't he? He's a good master. 
second point today is this, is that we are a fragrance of Christ to God. We are a fragrance of Christ to God. He is a good master because his desire is your joy. His desire is your joy as he leads us to victory. And he does so by manifesting through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him. It is the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ that brings victory. This is how he does it. I mean, what greater joy is there than sharing the captivating love of Christ with others? You want to see change in the world? Like I said, it only happens through the proclamation of the love of Christ that changes the hearts of people from murderers to laying their own life down for the King of Kings. This brings Paul great encouragement because no matter what, no matter how anxious his flesh is, no matter how hard the ministry is, no matter how much it seems that Satan is raging in the world, no matter what, no matter how out of control the world may seem, even in our own homes, our own kids, our own workplace, in our health, or whatever, we know that Christ is leading us. He is with us. He is not just behind you or next to you, but he's going before you in order to present us as an aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, if you've been captured by him. Chained to him, enslaved by him in his love. If you've been captured by Christ, service to him is your reality. In other words, Christ is using his triumphed people to lead us in victory or to triumph over all who are already his. And he says, in every place. Now, what does it look like to be a person who is triumphed and led by Christ? What does that mean? He gives us an idea in verse 15. Verse 15 says, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So the word, the word for in verse 15 is pointing back to the sweet aroma of verse 14. So we see that it is through us that God is manifesting the aroma of the knowledge of Christ. Okay? We now we understand the knowledge of Christ in verse 14. We should understand that as the knowledge of God's love displayed in the willing sacrifice of his own son on the cross for sin. We should understand the knowledge of Christ as that and that he's risen bodily from the dead and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father and he is returning. That is the knowledge of Christ. And it is sweet. It is a beautiful, sweet aroma to the Father. We therefore manifest this knowledge of Christ through the gospel. So then in verse 15, he says, We are a fragrance to Christ, of Christ to God. Now, this word fragrance, this word fragrance, it may remind you of the passage in Ephesians 5 
verses 1 and 2, where Paul says for us to be like Christ and love as he's loved. How did Christ love? Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is how Christ loved. We sacrifice. So we see in verse 14 and in Ephesians 5 that Paul uses the idea of Christ and his sacrifice as a sweet aroma or a fragrant offering. And then in 15, he says, we are a fragrance of Christ. We are a fragrance of Christ to God. So the idea or the nature of our gospel message is one of a sacrificial fragrance of Christ. When we proclaim the gospel and when we live the gospel, it should be that of an aroma, the same type of aroma that went up to God when Christ laid his own life down for the gospel. So how is it that we are sacrificial fragrance? It is both through the proclamation of the gospel with our mouth and the offering of our bodies as living sacrifice in order to make Christ known. It's both. It's both. The knowledge of Christ is made manifest through the gospel proclaimed and in our lives as we put the gospel message on display through willing and sacrificial service to the proclamation of the glorious gospel. Paul frames it up in Colossians this way. Paul would say in Colossians 1.24 that he rejoiced in his sufferings. Why? Because he was filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. He's filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, meaning that Christ's affliction is what paid the price for sin in full. But what was lacking? The proclamation of it. It was the proclamation of Christ's suffering and the demonstration of it to the world. The willingness of those who say they follow Christ to live like and lay their lives down for the souls of others. That's what Christ did. He was willing to suffer and humble himself. He was willing to be despised and rejected in order to redeem his sheep, to redeem his people. Yes, Christ did it all, but now he calls us to join him. He calls those who have been triumphed by him, who have been captured by him, and enslaved by him to follow him in the proclaiming of this glorious gospel and in the living it out in order to make disciples. Here's the thing. Even if it brings suffering, even if it brings pain, even if it brings hardship. And guess what? It will. Scriptures do not sugarcoat it. It will. It will require so many choices in your life that the world would never make, that your flesh would never make, but this is the call of a Christian. This is the call of a Christian. It is a sacrificial and joyful Life of dying to self and pointing to the worth of Jesus Christ. Pointing to the joy of obeying him in the mission to make disciples instead of pursuing the false joys of the world. Choices have to be made. 
if, if we are not moving in the direction of greater obedience here, you must ask yourself, what are we waiting for? The king has spoken. What are we waiting for? He says that he's leading us, he's going before us, he's with you, and he's doing this in every place. Every place? Yes, every place. So, therefore, will you be a fragrance of Christ with your neighbor? Will you pursue your home? Like, pursue your home the way others pursue countries. Would you pursue your home and disciple your family? Pursue your children this way. Where are the triumph in Christ? Those who will sacrifice time and sleep in our to-do list in order to go to war. And I'm talking on your knees. Where are the men who will go on their knees before the Lord every day, every morning, and fight, and fight for your family, and for your church, and for your neighborhood? Are we too busy to go to war? What about your workplace? Church, where are the feet that will go? Where are the feet that will go to Liberia and to Costa Rica and to the inner cities and to Guatemala and Uganda and Romania and Turkey or KSU or even your child's bedroom? Intentionally, purposefully, missionally. Where is Christ leading you? Where is your triumphant Savior calling you to fill up what is lacking in his affliction? Will you be obedient whenever and wherever and however God says, go, will you go? Well, he's already said go. He's already said it. In the scriptures over and over again, he has said, go, make disciples. Get busy. Stop getting distracted. Put off the flesh. Put off all distractions and go make disciples where he has you. And if he has you going somewhere else, then go. As one who's been triumphed and trust that he leads you. He leads you. Christ leads you. He goes before you. He does not leave you. And he always accomplishes his purposes through you as you obey. Remember, the fragrant offering of your life is to God first and foremost. That's what it says. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God. It is to him first and foremost, but... It is smelled among all around you. The fragrance of your sacrifice to him, though it earned you nothing, but demonstrates the worth of Christ, it is smelled all around you. It is smelled or seen or heard by those who are being saved or by those who are perishing. It's the only two camps. When you go to a Braves game and you see a stadium filled with, I don't know, 70,000 people, there's only two camps. Perishing or being saved. That's all you see there. When you walk through the shopping malls and the streets in downtown and you're having a fun night out and you look around and you see people, 
you see people who are perishing or being saved. That's the only two camps. There's no neutrality. No one is safe unless they're in Christ. And that's the call. That, that's, the, that's the weight of it. It's either life or death. Which means the gospel message lived and proclaimed is always working one or the other. When you proclaim the gospel and you live the gospel, it's working in those who hear it, smell it, and see it as life in them or God is using it as death in them. Verse 16 says that, says it this way, to one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. He says, who is adequate for these things? Man, I feel the weight of that question every time I stand here. Every time a message is preached from this pulpit, it's working life or death. What is it working in you? What is it working in you this morning? You've heard the gospel. What is it doing in your heart this morning? Is it working life or is it working death? We are not adequate for these things. Christ is. Point three. Point three, we are victorious in Christ. We are victorious in Christ. Paul, again, is contrasting himself again from the false teachers who promote self. They promote self-sufficiency. Again, they say, look, Paul is weak. He suffers. Don't, Don't be like that. Look at all the stuff he goes through. What kind of God would do that to somebody? He doesn't even speak well. His life is just painful. And Paul's saying, they're right. Nailed it. <laughs> life is hard. The ministry is painful. The life, of, the life of, of a Christian is filled with all kinds of joyful sacrifice. The gospel message is all about sacrifice. It's all about love. And it is a pleasant aroma to God and his elect. But... He understands that some in Corinth, it won't smell so good to them. Some will hear the message of the gospel. Some will see your life of sacrifice, and it will actually only produce death in them. They will see the choices you make, and they will say, that's stupid. That's dumb. Your sacrificial offering is a mom who gives her life away for her children. It's not a fragrant aroma to them. It's death to them. A person who's willing to risk their life, their health, their time for their home, their church, their neighborhood, or their co-workers, or people who are on the other side of the world, it's all just foolishness to them. What a waste of time. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. Like the city that was conquered by the Roman general, the incense offered up to the, to the gods in front of them, it was a smell of death to them because that's what was coming for them. To the dead in spirit, the gospel message and the gospel life, it only produces more death, greater death. But God is sovereign, and that's where Paul is finding encouragement. Because he knows that to those God whom God gives life, 
Oh, to those whom God gives eyes to see and a nose to smell, to those whom God gives the victory, your life of sacrificial love and the devotion to Christ and the gospel you proclaim with your mouth, it will produce life in them. What a calling. What a joy to be able to proclaim Christ and know that it's going to fulfill his purposes. Because to that person who God's given the life to in their heart, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. They're going to see your weakness. They're going to see your weakness. They're going to see the love you show. And they're going to see your heart as you proclaim Christ to them and not yourself, not your own wisdom, but just his wisdom. And those whom God gives life to, they will see, therefore, their weakness before a holy God. Then the love of Christ will become to them the wisdom of God, not foolishness. To them, then Christ will become righteousness to them and redemption for them and sanctification for them. So you see, your life and your proclamation of the gospel with your mouth will always fulfill God's purpose of either working life or working death. The heat of the gospel always melts the wax or it hardens the clay. What matters is the nature of the person's heart. And God is the one who changes the nature to something that is meltable by the gospel. We just proclaim it. We just proclaim it faithfully. God provides the growth. And so Paul knows that in Corinth, some will believe and some won't. Some will see the glory of God in our life. Some will see the glory of the gospel and some won't. But either way, Christ is still triumphant. It is a guaranteed success mission. Every time you proclaim the gospel, it is guaranteed success to do exactly what God has designed for the gospel to do. So how can you proclaim the gospel not knowing who's elect and who is it? Knowing that God is going to do the work and it's guaranteed success every time. It is a weighty thing though, isn't it? It's a weighty thing to be used by God for such a purpose as life or death. That's it. That's what it is. I want you to feel the weight of it. It is a weighty calling. One that I pray will get weightier and weightier and weightier for me more today than it was yesterday and more tomorrow than it was today. I want to grow in my understanding of the weightiness of this life or death life that God has called us to. Stop messing around and pretending like it doesn't exist. Like the mission, it doesn't exist. It does. It matters every moment of our life. This is why Paul says in verse 16, because of the weightiness of it, he says, who is sufficient? Who is adequate for such things? Answer, nobody. Nobody. The point four is this. We are adequate in Christ. We are adequate in Christ. Paul is operating only in the grace of God. And that's it, not himself, not his strength, but in the strength of Christ, in the strength and the power of the gospel to produce life or death. He's just faithful to be a fragrant aroma to God, but among those who are being saved and perishing also. 
See, Paul, unlike these false teachers, he does not see himself as sufficient. He doesn't measure up to the infinitely glorious mission of making disciples. He knows it. He just doesn't measure up to it. But rather, it is Christ in him. Just like we sang today, it is Christ in him. He is the one who is sufficient to accomplish his purposes, but he is sovereignly chosen to accomplish his mission through you, through the church. And therefore, he makes us adequate through the proclamation of the gospel. What he says in chapter 3, verse 5, he makes us adequate. And so it is by his wisdom, God's wisdom, Christ's wisdom, the wisdom of the cross, the wisdom of the gospel, it is his word alone. It is only through that that he will accomplish his purposes. It's not going to happen through you and me and our craftiness. Just through the gospel. We are merely conduits of his truth. We are merely just, just a pipeline of his truth to bring life or death to those who hear it. He continues in verse 17 to say, in his inadequacy, he says, for we are not like many who consider themselves adequate and they peddle the word of God. But rather from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. That is, that is the foundation of our message, the foundation of our, miss, our mission. Paul is saying that he's inadequate. He's in stark contrast to the adequate false teachers. They may say, they may say they're adequate, I am not. Paul is contrasting his ministry of suffering and his message of the gospel with that of the false apostles because in their adequacy, they peddle the word of God. They sell the word of God or they adulterate the word of God for their own gain, for their own glory, for their own, with their own man-made wisdom, for the eyes of men, for the praise of men. But Paul is saying that as a sincerely captured or triumphed person in Christ, he is sincere in his desire to magnify only him, only Christ whom I've been chained to, not self. Willing slaves of Christ are given genuine hearts that genuinely love the general, the conqueror and those whom he has purchased with his blood. Therefore, we serve in no other name, we go in no other name than that of God himself, and we preach no other name than Christ and him crucified. And we do it for none other than the glory of God, not man. Some final thoughts, some final encouragements for us as we close. Number one, Three things to fight for. We go into the week, okay? Fight to know Christ. Fight to know your Savior. To be triumphed by Him. Ask yourself, have I been captured by Christ? Have I been captured by Christ? Are you... In other words, are you captivated by him? Are you drawn to him like a moth to a flame? 
Is your living or the life that you live, is it continuously moving toward or away from pointing others to him as your supreme treasure? Or are you pointing the world to a different treasure? We say this a lot, but, we, but that which we pursue, that which we sacrifice time and money and energy for, it points others to the value of it. Everything we sacrifice for, it shows the world that this is valuable. This is worth sacrificing for. It preaches a message. The question is, where is your life pointing the world to? And would they say, yes, I I value that too. Or would they say, what a fool. Or by God's grace, would they say, what a savior. Looking at your life, would they say, I agree, or what a fool, or what a savior. God has called us to a different way. To a different way of the world. A a way that looks foolish to the world, but is faithful to this side of God. So do you know him? Again, are you on your knees pleading before the throne to say, show me your glory. I want to know you, Christ. I want to know you, my Savior. I want to be captured by you. Because as a famous preacher said, it's a dangerous thing to know him because the more you know him, the more you'll want to pick up your cross and kill your flesh and be chained to him and follow him. You know him. Number two, these will get quicker. Number two, fight discouragement with weakness. Fight discouragement with weakness. The work of the ministry is hard. So fight discouragement with the recognition that you are weak, but God is sovereign and he's leading you in triumph and that our faithfulness to be gospel proclaimers will always result in victory. This is true of our service from the pulpit or music or children's ministry or as parents in your home or as neighbors on the street or at your workplace. We proclaim Christ. Some believe, some won't, but the word of the gospel and the evidence of the gospel in your life is always accomplishing God's desire. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Number three, finally, fight to store up true wisdom. Fight to store up in your heart true wisdom. We must understand that we have no wisdom of our own except that which comes from God's word. We have nothing to say to anyone except that which is in God's word. We have no wisdom. Our wisdom leads only to death. Our wisdom just screws things up. Our wisdom is just messy and filthy, but God's wisdom brings Life, which means that we must know it. We must be a people who swim in the depths of God's word, not in the surface of it. Don't be, and don't be satisfied with just being a surface level Bible reader. Get into the depths of it. I don't care if you're five years old and claim to know Christ or all the way up into your 120. I don't know how old people get there right now, but how old you are. I don't care what gender you are. 
Know Christ in his word. Go to the depths of it. Know doctrine. Know him. Know his heart. Know his mind. And then share him with others, not yourself. We have nothing else to offer. Nothing in my hands I bring except Christ and his wisdom. That's it. So know his heart. Know his mind. Know him. Know his word. Fight to know his word. Sacrifice sleep if you must to know his word. Sacrifice time. Sacrifice your TV. Sacrifice your entertainment to know him. And then make him known to others. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we know that nothing can be done apart from your grace and nothing can be done apart from your spirit. And so we ask, God, that today your word penetrates hearts, mine, the bodies, those who are here who don't know you, those who are here who do know you, all people, Lord, work out salvation in us, work out sanctification in us, make Christ more glorious to this body. In Jesus' name.